I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, witches. Before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to give you a heads up about a few topics. In addition to talking about incarceration and the trauma linked to that, we also discuss settler colonialism, racism, violence, including sexual violence and assault, and police brutality. Take care of yourself as you listen to this episode. These are important topics, but they're also challenging. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, before we get started, I have two extremely important announcements. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Announcement the first. This episode is going to be released on Tuesday, May 25th, which is my birthday. <gasps> oh my gosh. Happy birthday, Hannah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That means it's your birthday right now for all the listeners. It's technically my birthday on the day that we record as well. I don't make the rules. That's just how time works. Yeah. So that's how time works. We establish that. I hope all of your gifts are in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Announcement the second. We're adding a new tier to Patreon. Patreon supporters, you've all been so supportive of this project and this podcast and what we've done that we've decided to expand our Patreon a little more by adding the Prefix tier. (laughs) It launches on June 1st, so you should probably go sign up right now. Mm -hmm. Um, What do Prefix get, you might ask? Well... In addition to all of the other bonus content, you know, unedited audio from the original run, which please tell me Q&As, guest interviews and movie watch alongs, you will have the right to unending smugness that comes in the form of a Patreon exclusive enamel pin. I dare you to find me a queer who doesn't love enamel pins. I dare you. They don't exist. (laughs) It's a fact. (laughs) So there will be a new pin design every four months, and they will all be exclusive to the prefects tier. The first one, which is already underway, is a beautiful enamel pin featuring a rallying cry of the Witch Please community. I read better than rolling. Oh, it's so good. It's so, such a, a sentiment so close to my heart. Head over to patreon.com slash witch please to join now and get your hands on an accessory that will proudly declare your complex and critical relationship to a fandom that you nevertheless hold dear. That's what you want pins to do. <laughs> yeah, that's why I have a fries before guys pin on my 
pink corduroy jacket. Precisely. Okay, Hannah, if those are all your announcements, would you be so kind as to introduce our very special guest? Oh, I sure would. Our guest today is poet and teacher Mercedes Eng. Mercedes is the author of Mercenary English, Prison Industrial Complex Explodes, My White Mama, and she is currently working on a women's prison reader. Welcome, Mercedes. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, maybe to get started, Mercedes, could you tell us a little bit about your personal relationship to the Harry Potter series, if you have one? Definitely, I do. I started reading the novels along with my little cuz, mm. and I really, really liked them. I was very taken by them, I think because of what I saw as a kind of inclusivity, the Patel sisters, for example, not being there to serve some kind of South Asian, you know, purpose, but just are present. Mm -hmm. I loved it that Hermione was not blonde <laughs> um, and that she had bushy hair. So I think that I was really drawn to the world and then to that kind of inclusivity. And as an Asian woman, or maybe I should say as an East Asian femme, I was excited to see the character Cho Chang. Mm -hmm. But I think in the years since I read those, and gosh, that was probably 15, maybe longer mm -hmm. years ago, I started thinking about that character and different things that I'd read in relation to folks of color responding to the text. And mm -hmm. I guess it hadn't occurred to me that Cho Chang has two last names. I was reading about how often um, in novels, literature, movies, that male protagonists might have like an Asian starter wife. Oh. But the real love, the real love is a white woman. Oh. And so we can see that happening with Ginny. I think it's gotten more complicated thinking mm -hmm. about that idea of inclusivity and then, of course, there is the trans-exclusionary radical feminist mm -hmm. perspective that she is operating from. Mm -hmm. So it's it's complex to have a kind of love of those books and what they do, um, yeah. and then separating that from the person or whether we can do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, you are you are right on the same page as us in terms of like really trying to hold at the same time that sense of like these books were really important for a lot of us and did have these sort of opportunities to to see yourself or to see mm -hmm. versions of community or versions of heroism that maybe you weren't seeing elsewhere and that and that appealed to people for all kinds of complex reasons and then to return to them mm -hmm. as a more mature reader and start to be like, okay, so this text has some structural failings, but like, mm -hmm. does that mean I need to go back in time and berate my 12-year-old or 25-year-old self for like being an inadequately critical reader? Or is it just like, mm. cool, you know what? Sometimes we arrive at the capacity to think critically via the process of reading and learning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about Harry, too. Mm -hmm. And for me, I saw him as a mixie. And that mm -hmm. is also how I identify. I don't think I had met a protagonist that was like that, even as Harry is a cishet white guy. There, there was that sense of mixiness there. Mercedes, 
Can you tell us a little bit about why it is that you read Harry this way? What is it about his character that lends itself to that interpretation? I think Harry's, is it Harry's father is from Mm -hmm. a magical family, but his mother Mm -hmm. is not. And there was that whole gross, like, fascist blood thing, like with the aristocrats. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he was, um, you know, not fully that, and there were issues around that, I thought was really, yeah, that really spoke to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if other folks, you know, perceive him that way, but that, yeah, I saw him as a mixie. I have seen that in fan art where people will cast him as being mixed in all kinds of ways. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're definitely not alone there. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think there's a real possibility of reading because the way that disdain for muggle-born wizards is cast as a sort of eugenicist disdain for unclean Mm -hmm. people that it maps really well onto like experiences of racialization. And so I think Mm -hmm. people read Harry as mixed. Often people read Hermione as a woman of color. She's often read as black for exactly Mm -hmm. those reasons, right? Yeah. And I think that there's a reading available from the Dursley side too, right? Because of the disdain, like the very shocking and disgusting disdain that they have for Harry because of his quote unquote abnormality. And like, I know a lot of queer readers will identify with that sense of like being different and being othered by your family. But I think that it also lends itself to like the issue of the magical family being the other and then the quote unquote normal. The Dursleys want so much to be normal. The the normal white family who perceives Harry as this like aberrant stain on what is otherwise their spotless reputation. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really sort of evocative of like diasporic narratives, Um, diaspora being for listeners, Mm. sort of communities who sort of live outside of what might be understood as their places of origin. And diasporic narratives often have people sort of feeling like they don't belong in the place where they are and then going to the place that they understand to be their origin and realizing they don't really belong there either. That's sort of a a trope. Mm -hmm. Um, We see that in Harry's story, right? That he doesn't belong in the muggle world. But when he goes into the wizarding world, people are like, well, you're too muggle. You're too muggle to be here. Yeah. And the reading of Harry as potentially mixed race or a potentially racialized character also comes through in how we see, you know, in the Dursley's household, his constant sort of proximity to the carceral system, uh, which is my segue into the topic of today's episode. Dearest listeners, by now, you will surely have noticed that we can never cover everything about a subject in a single episode. Not queer theory, not feminism, and certainly not Azkaban. So let's take a quick trip through revision and draw together some pertinent threads from previous conversations that will prepare us to tackle the Wizarding World's carceral system. Probably the most significant concept we're going to be bringing back is that of ideology, because it's pretty much impossible to talk about anything, let alone the prison industrial complex, without talking about its ideological underpinnings. Mm, Sure is. So 
an ideological refresh. Ideology, to remind you, is our imagined relationship to the real conditions of our existence. So ideology is how we understand the world. But ideological formations like capitalism and white supremacy are not self-perpetuating or self-reinforcing. They need constant reinforcement, often from the state. We've seen examples of how ideologies are coercively reinforced and used to maintain structural inequities across a whole bunch of our topics. For example, we talked about how the ideological construction of humans as not animals has been used to perpetuate settler colonialism and anti-Black racism by creating discourses that cast some people as less human than others. And then we looked at how that played out in the Harry Potter books through the dehumanization of house elves and goblins, as well as Hagrid's heightened vulnerability to the prison system when he's sent to Azkaban in book two. Oh, yeah. We also looked at heteronormativity as ideological in our queer theory episode and talked about how all of the state apparatuses surrounding it make it seem like the only coherent and natural, quote unquote, natural form of sexuality thus producing queerness as aberrant, dangerous, even as a threat to the state. But as we've pointed out a number of times, if things like heterosexuality or cisgender identity were actually natural, they wouldn't require such consistent policing. Oh, heck no. (laughs) We can also think about the medical versus social models of disability in terms of ideology, the ideological construction of disability as a problem rather than, say, access as a universal right, perpetuates a focus on cure over access. This is reinforced in all the structural ways the state organizes institutions to limit access and perpetuate ableism, whether it's standardized testing or urban infrastructure. So you might be asking yourself, what does the prison industrial complex have to do with ideology and the state apparatuses that enforce it? Could we in fact argue that the prison industrial complex is itself one of the most overt examples of state apparatuses being used to reinforce ideologies in which certain humans are more human than others and some lives matter more than others? We probably could. I think actually. I bet we could. I think actually we might in this very episode. But before we wade too far into that theoretical conversation, I want us to collectively take a look at exactly what we know about the prison system in the Harry Potter world. So, Marcel, tell me about some of the things that seem to be illegal in the wizarding world. So, okay, I we've. It's a, it seems to be a weird system because there doesn't seem to be any kind of distinction being made between the types of criminal activities. If there is a distinction, it's not clear. It's not made clear to us as readers. So we have things like doing underage magic, mm-hmm. um, messing around with muggles, and committing murder. And so I don't know about what you all were like when you were teenagers, but like if I as a teenager had been able to do magic but was told that I couldn't do it outside of school, I probably would have gotten into a lot of trouble doing it outside of school anyway. Yes. And so the fact that that seems to us as readers to be put on par with murder or with the ways that 
messing with muggles can incorporate everything from, you know, tinkering with toilets so that unsuspecting muggles will have an embarrassing experience in a public bathroom, or what we see in book four, where wizards actually torment and torture muggles Mm -hmm. for fun. The fact that those kinds of things and murder are on par with dropping a cake using levitation on your cruel stepmother's guest is weird. (laughs) It's weird. It is weird. I mean, it is reminiscent of like an abstinence only sex ed policy, right? Being like the only option is for these wizard teens to not practice any magic outside of school. And if they practice any magic, Mm -hmm. they will go to jail. It's like, that's not sustainable. That is 100% not sustainable. But what we see starting in this book is the fact that clearly the system is enacted unevenly, which is Mm -hmm. a significant part of it. Before we get into that, though, just a few more sort of overarching things we can observe about how the prison system works. So the ministry seems to be the police Mm -hmm. because Harry is anticipating Ministry of Magic representatives swooping down on him for his underage magic. But the Dementors absolutely not affiliated with the ministry in any clear way. They seem to be monsters that the ministry has a sort of uncomfortable temporary allegiance with. So there's a sort of odd divide there. Like almost like a paramilitary force. I guess we could think about the Dementors as a paramilitary force. They they definitely have like an outrageous amount of power and autonomy yeah (laughs) like the ministry seems reluctant to give them limits yeah and any limits that they do have can be broken at any point i was thinking about the relationship of the dementors to the ministry of magic and Mm -hmm. thinking about them as prison guards Mm -hmm. but then also in some ways kind of thinking of them as cops because they they look for serious. Mm-hmm. They are yes. in other places. So I don't know whether they're necessarily commanded by the ministry, but they work to guard the prison. Mm-hmm. And then they also leave the prison to track down serious. So I thought mm-hmm. they're they're surveilling for the state in some ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And surveilling for, I mean, for themselves, right? Like that the primary thing, their goal is incarceration. <sighs> And harm. Mm -hmm. They have no other function. And certainly Dumbledore's displeasure with having the Dementors at Hogwarts suggests, I mean, one, that we can read Dumbledore as a prison abolitionist. Mm -hmm. And two, that we could sort of put that the Dementors' presence at Hogwarts in conversation with current movements to get cops off campuses and to get cops out of schools. Mm-hmm. I love that. We give Dumbledore a real hard time, but on this note, we'll give him an A for effort. <laughs> a for A for effort. Um, so a few more facts. I want us to sort of move through to hearing a little bit more from Mercedes about the prison industrial complex, but just a few more sort of facts I pulled out about the prison system first. So from what we can tell, Azkaban is the only institution for incarceration. At this point. At this point. Yes. Yeah. Everybody's really scared of it. Mm hmm. It's generally affiliated with, like, 
overt villains like Bellatrix Lestrange and Sirius Black before we, you know, learn the truth about Sirius Black. Usually mass murderers, right? So in the popular imagination of Azkaban, it's where you send mass murderers. But we also know that Hagrid is sent there on unproven suspicion of having opened a door. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bad door, but still. It's a bad door, but it's not mass murder. And it is the release of a monster. So if anything, it's like negligence yeah. or like endangering children. But it's not the same as putting him in prison because he did the murders. Yeah. I mean, there's also we haven't seen the trial system yet, but there also appears to be no trial. He just seems <sighs> to go straight. So in that sense, it seems to be both both sort of jail and prison. Mm -hmm. Like he just goes straight to Azkaban. Yeah. And then I think really significantly is just the mental image of Azkaban as a place, right? So it's a fortress on an island in the middle of the sea, guarded by monsters that suck the joy out of people. And most of the prisoners there go mad and die of despair. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the Dementors suck their literal souls out of their bodies. So I think really we need to grapple with one, why is this a powerful metaphor for how the prison industrial complex actually operates? And two, within the world of the text, how does anybody think that this is okay? I was just thinking um, about that description of the prison and the way that we see that manifest in the real world, if not, you know, an island, certainly outside of things. And it made me think of this line by poet Tongo Eisenmartin, which is, if it has a prison, it is a prison. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about sort of the institutions, where institutions were located in relation to the places we were living. My mother, in fact, moving to a city to be closer to the institution Mm -hmm. to visit. But yeah, great line. Yeah. If it has a prison, it is a prison. That is an incredible line and so, so evocative of exactly that idea of sort of the prison's relationship to the state and ideology, right? In the sense that Mm -hmm. if you have a state that requires a prison to operate and perpetuate its its ideologies, then that whole state is a prison. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is exactly the kind of thing I would love to hear more about in our next segment. Believe it or not, our goal in this episode is not to give you nightmares, but rather to understand why the wizarding prison system is itself designed to be a nightmare. What's the purpose? Who does it serve? Why is punishment the default? We have so many questions. So let's hustle on over to Transfiguration class, where a special guest, Professor Mercedes Eng, will help us make sense of the prison system. To start us off, Mercedes, could you tell us about your poetry collection, Prison Industrial Complex Explodes? What prompted you to start working on the book? What did you learn as you were researching for it and as you were writing it? Well, I come to the prison through my father, who was incarcerated probably half of my life until um, he died. And I was visiting within the walls of the prison while still in utero. I think part of the reason that I started working on this 
book, as with my other books, is a way of processing, a way of thinking through. And it's certainly my agenda to work with um, lived experience, my lived experience, but always in the service of trying to address the wider world. I would love to hear some more of the the things that you learned in the process of writing the book, but I wonder if we might sort of dive down a little bit more just into that term prison industrial complex, which we've used a few times, but which might be unfamiliar for some of our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit more about that term and, and where it comes from and sort of what it is trying to represent or trying to say? Well, I know the term from Dr. Angela Davis. And I think the idea is, you know, playing off that idea of the military industrial complex Mm -hmm. in which the American economy was dependent on the production of armaments. And so if the economy pivots around the production of armaments, then the country necessarily needs to be in war or at least um, attached to other nations that are at war. So I think the prison industrial complex refers to the ways in which um, government and economy and business have these shared interests in terms of profit. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of the way that I think of it. Mm-hmm. And what's, I think, so key there in understanding prisons as part of a prison industrial complex is that you understand that there is something to be gained by the state from having people in prison. Yeah, so you have in the States these for-profit prisons. Mm -hmm. You have these entities guaranteeing 90% bed capacity. How is it even possible that they can guarantee that? Mm -hmm. And even the prisons that are not run for profit Mm -hmm. are incredibly profitable because they essentially have a captive labor force that produces goods for many things, including the military industrial complex. So the prison system, whether privatized or not, is incredibly profitable and, of course, is a mechanism of control of certain people Mm -hmm. as well. So picking apart the term, so we know what prison is, and then industrial refers to the fact that this is, in fact, an industry in the same way that a country might be dependent on manufacturing or farming, countries also become dependent on prison labor as an industry. And not only, I think, prison labor, but when we think about all of the guards, so certainly certainly the prisoners um, producing industrial goods, but also the amount of jobs that it um, provides. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm using my air quotes here. I think for many of us, When we think about the prison industrial complex, we think about the U.S. system. I know, like, for Canadians, that's especially true because of the media that we consume, right? So, like, a lot of the examples that we have at our fingertips are um, examples of of American prison carceral systems. But can you tell us a bit more about how the prison industrial complex manifests in Canada and what its relationship is to settler colonialism? Well, we certainly don't have the scale here that there is in the U.S., even with the population. But the Canadian state is 
investigating for-profit prisons in different national contexts, including the U.S. and in England. So we see them at least inquiring. We also see that services in the prison are becoming privatized. So I think we see that shift towards something like that. In terms of the relationship to settler colonialism, well, I feel like this is going to be a long answer. Um, <laughs> we love that. And maybe um, an emotional one. So I, I'm working with statistics that track 2003 to 2013. These are statistics that come from the Office of the Correctional Investigator, which is an entity that was formed after the Kingston Pen riots that lasted for four days and were a result of the abysmal conditions um, within the prison system. Mm-hmm. So according to the 2013 report of the correctional investigator, the incarceration of Indigenous women has risen by almost 90 percent. 90 percent. It's it's just um, shocking. Or maybe it's not shocking. It's fucking distressing. Maybe it's not shocking. Fucking distressing is a perfect way to put it. Yeah. OK. <laughs> so we, we see the different ways in which the Canadian settler state has attempted to control Indigenous populations is a genocidal state. So after Mm -hmm. the residential school system, after the 60s scoop, during the millennial scoop, because I think it's necessary to to talk about that, we see that um, the Indigenous youth population is actually the fastest growing population in Canada. And so the state is freaking out. Um, because it's had these different methods and ways of control and elimination of populations. And so what we see happening is this shocking increase in the number of Indigenous women um, and girls um, being incarcerated, often for really minor, minor kinds of acts of crime, I guess, if we could call it that. And we also see the way in which um, these women are being imprisoned and also at the same time, the way that these children are still being seized, even though that's not as easy for the government at this point Mm -hmm. in time. So I certainly see the ways in which that increase is a direct attempt to control the Indigenous population. That is how I would see it. We also um, know again, from the report of the Office of the Correctional Investigator, that Indigenous folks are disproportionately represented in the prison system were um, before this sharp increase in the incarceration of Indigenous women. We know that there are more and more folks of colour entering into that system while the number of white prisoners is actually declining. And again, I'm working with stats that are from 2013, but I am fairly certain that um, they're still accurate. For those who aren't familiar, the 60s scoop refers to a really widespread practice that sort of came into effect as the residential school system began to decline in Canada. It was kind of replaced with this new policy probably an unofficial policy, but like a really widespread practice where Indigenous children began to be taken away from their families, often on very sort of shallow pretexts and were adopted into white families. 
and that that continues to be a practice. And so understanding the connection between the residential school system where children were taken out of their communities and functionally incarcerated by the state. And then the 60s scoop and the way that indigenous children continue to be massively overrepresented in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, foster care, residential schools and prisons are all just different arms of the state attempting to continue Mm -hmm. to control in the interests of eliminating indigenous communities who live in Canada. Yeah. I think what is very exciting, though, about this moment is to see um, this literal increase in population, to see so many Indigenous youth active in um, social justice organizing. As somebody who mm-hmm. uh, doesn't organize as much anymore, it's been a real um, thrill and really heartening to actually see these young folks out doing things and uh making moves. So even as the the state continues on its genocidal path, we see resistance to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing to me how people can keep fighting so powerfully against a system designed so effectively to try to stop them. Like it's just it's just absolutely incredible. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One of the things that I think the Canadian state is really, really good at is presenting itself as a kind of neutral government or a a government that seeks to repair relations while at the same time constantly undermining those efforts in a variety of nefarious ways. Something that I'm wondering about is how it is that we here in Canada might picture our justice system as something that still results in prison and how this idea of Canada as like a a multicultural nation and as a progressive nation, how those discourses maybe feed into this system where we can mistake, you know, genocide and uh, assimilation and ethnic cleansing as a kind of system of justice. That was a that was a big winding question. What do you think, Mercedes? Can you can you talk about justice and prison in relationship a little bit? Yeah, I think we as Canadians are very invested in being different than the United States in many ways around never having had slavery, which is totally not true, mm-hmm. or or the way that the U.S. prison system works and racially profiles. So I, I think that a lot of Canadians look to that system and then they are not able mm-hmm. to look at the Canadian system in that way. And I think that there are many, mm-hmm. many people who see the punishment of crimes as a kind of form of justice. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of justice? Because I can kind of hear in my head and in the world all the time, people being like, well, but we need a justice system, right? Like, well, we need we need a system. Mm. What is the relationship between this idea of like, we need a system that maintains justice and how that, you know, becomes something like the prison Mm -hmm. industrial complex? Man. Well, I mean, I think different people have different (laughs) conceptions of justice, obviously. But recently I um, I was speaking at Prison Justice Day last year and in some ways, I very much, very much understand the call for justice when we're talking about folks that have been impacted by the carceral system. But it seems to me that in some ways we can never, we can't have justice because in order for that to happen, people would be returned from the dead. Yeah, Things would not be operating the way that they are operating. So sometimes when I hear those calls for justice, I I understand where they're coming from. I just think about that idea of like demanding justice. I feel that we have to continue to do that, even though I don't mean justice through the Canadian state's criminal and court system, but also feeling very much aware of the fact that for me, my idea of what justice is, is not maybe something that we can realize. Yeah. I saw a lot of a lot of conversations about this in the wake of the Chauvin sentencing and people saying, you know, that that police officer being convicted of a crime is justice for George Floyd. And then the response saying, like, no, justice would be George Floyd being alive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say as a prison abolitionist, I'm glad that that motherfucker is in jail. Do I think that Mm -hmm. this conviction is going to end racial profiling? No, I do not. Do I think that he should be out on the street able to kill somebody else? Absolutely not. So I feel that we're in this, well, I hope that we are in this in-between space where we're moving towards abolition. But I, I absolutely... I think in radical ways, it doesn't change things, but I wouldn't want to see that person out on the street at this point in time. So it's that's a, it's a complex, complex thing. And it might be harm reduction, not justice, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think other conceptions of justice are more focused on harm reduction. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I was going to ask if you could maybe talk just a little bit more about some of those other forms of justice. I know you mentioned restorative and transformative justice, and I think those are often circulating as an answer to the question, what would it actually look like to abolish the police? What would it actually look like to abolish prisons? Like, we need something. And I think there's a short-circuiting of the creative imagination, I think, you know, particularly for people who, as you say, have felt complacent in relationship to police into the prison industrial complex, that there's a sort of failure of imagination of other things. Can I maybe um, tack on to that question, too? I think that sometimes the narrative about the prison system is supposed to involve rehabilitation with big air quotes around rehabilitation, whatever that's supposed to mean. I'm so curious why it is that punishment 
is the sort of default that we go to as a culture, as a state, as a people. It is a definite lack of creativity and also this sort of constantly falling back on the default of punishing for doing wrong instead of thinking in any other way about justice or transformation or even rehabilitation. Well, I certainly do not think that the prison system is intended to rehabilitate. (laughs) I certainly see my father's um, experience there as a person who had a substance abuse disorder. I do not feel that the prison work to reform him um, or reform the folks that are in there. And to my way of thinking, it makes things worse. And it's funny thinking about, yeah, our concept of justice is needing to be punitive. And of course, those are um, ideas, ideologies that were brought here by colonizers. So I think there were um, different conceptions of justice that existed here before the Canadian settler state, which is not to idealize Indigenous peoples and their cultures pre-contact, but I do think that there were different ways of enacting justice. So I guess restorative justice is, and these are things that I'm learning about still, but I guess restorative justice is about trying to maybe restore the situation to the place before the harm, I guess. So I think I'm kind of more interested in the idea of a transformation rather than the restorative. But I am still working through some of those ideas around conceptions of justice. I always like the transformative more than the more than the restorative, I've got to say, because the transformative recognizes that there is something wrong, right? Yes. The transformative justice recognizes often like something did go wrong here. Something went wrong in this person's life or something went wrong in this community or so something needs to change. And that recognition is a pivotal one, but our current understanding of carcerality is generally what needs to change is that this individual who is a problem needs to be removed from society. Rather than what needs to change is the structures that often leave people without resources, without support, without community, right? It all ties together, but we have a tendency in the West to criminalize behaviors that have more to do with things like poverty Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that criminalizing poverty is a way of, you know, maintaining power and maintaining the status quo. And so, you know, you do things like, like, you know, in Vancouver, this is at top of mind. You do things like criminalize particular kinds of substances that, tend to be associated more with poor or unhoused communities, more with indigenous communities, more with racialized communities. And you make those things illegal so that you can target Mm -hmm. those communities. And it's a totally different understanding of justice than saying, Mm -hmm. okay, there are a lot of people with substance addiction disorders. Let's decriminalize those substances. Let's provide safe supply and safe injection sites. Let's make sure everyone is housed. Yeah. And then once we've done that, let's see if that transformation addresses some of these underlying mm. issues. It'll probably do so, all of the evidence suggests, significantly more effectively than putting people in prisons. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there's something at the root. There is this 
Western ideology of moral purity and punishment that says, like, people who do bad things Mm -hmm. have to get in trouble. Otherwise, you know, without prison, we'll all just start murdering each other. Well, when I think about transformative justice, I think about people who have committed the crime of rape and sexual assault. And there is the focus on the individual who perpetrated the crime and the harm that was done there. Shouldn't we be looking at rape culture? Isn't that what we ought to be looking at? Mm -hmm. And it seems so very Western, like the idea of a punitive justice, but it also seems so Western to focus on the individual. One of the key things that both restorative and transformative justice do is resist the casting of people who have been accused of or who have committed crimes, resist the casting of them as, as monstrous others. The casting of, in the example of rape culture, the rapist as this monstrous other perpetuates this idea that it's an aberration rather than a deeply structural problem in which kinds of sexual violence are constantly being allowed by the way that we sort of think about sex and violence and bodies and who has a right to bodily safety. And at the same time, that brings me back to what you said about Chauvin, Mercedes, because I know that that is, for a lot of of people who have experienced that kind of harm, it's like, cool, yeah, but fuck that person. You know, and so I, I think there I think there is there is a tension and these conversations about restorative and transformative justice, they're in process. They are not pat solutions to the problem of how to respond to somebody having done really serious harm. Right. It's not like, oh, OK, well, it's restorative justice. So everybody forgive everybody or you love prisons. It's just it's just more complicated than that. Mm hmm. I think, you know, I think we can pull out of this a sort of shared understanding that the current prison industrial complex is a wildly corrupt system that is about perpetuating violence against already marginalized individuals and communities without us claiming that we collectively have some pat solution to what alternatives are available to us. Just knowing, just being able to say this system is unacceptable. And if we start from there and collectively agree that we are going to envision alternatives, that's a much better place to start than pretending that the status quo is acceptable. As I segue us into a conversation about returning to this book and returning to how we see Azkaban, I am interested in having a conversation about what we think the monstrosity of Azkaban is doing textually. So let's head over to our next segment, shall we? I don't know about you, Hannah, but every time I leave transfiguration class, my mind is racing with new ideas that I can't wait to discuss. I just want to nerd the heck out. It's a good thing we've got our owls. The segment where we put our new knowledge to the test. Yeah. So bearing in mind what we have learned about the prison industrial complex and how it operates, I think that there's a few scenes that we can come back to just try to flesh out our sense of how it's working in 
Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and in the wizarding world in general. And the first one that I picked up on as I was reading back through the book with this lens is something I've never really thought of much before, which is Uncle Vernon's insistence that Harry tell Aunt Marge when she's visiting that Harry attends St. Brutus's Secure Center for Incurably Criminal Boys. And that Aunt Marge is one delighted to hear that he is essentially going to a prison school and two advocates for physical abuse as correction. She says, if you can speak of your beatings in that casual way, they clearly aren't hitting you hard enough. One, I am shocked every time I reread these books that the child abuse is so much worse than I remembered. But two, it's really notable how this idea of Harry belonging in a prison is made so explicit right at the beginning of this book where we learn about prisons. It's shocking how easy it is to turn to abuse as a system for correction. And one of the things that I wonder about when I reread these books is what are we supposed to think is funny? Mm. You know, Mm. Um, when it's textual, when it's put on the page and young people are reading it and we have Harry saying like, oh, yeah, I've been beaten loads of times. Are we supposed to think that that's funny? And if we're supposed to think that that's funny, what's the function of that? Like, what is the effect of reducing like a violent system that abuses children as humorous? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Does it undermine it? Does it? I mean, one way I think this scene is functioning is foreshadowing of Harry's relationship to Sirius mm-hmm. that that we are mm. going to find out later that Harry is very much like his father and his godfather mm. in the sense mm. of his often breaking rules and that, you know, what we see him doing in the scene is he accidentally inflates Aunt Marge, but she is established as a pretty horrible person and he doesn't permanently harm her. So his, his, you know, quote unquote crime is quite minor and understandable and justifiable. And his fear that he is going to get arrested, right? He runs, he runs away from home and is sure that he's about to get arrested. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of a parallel for the eventual Mm -hmm. revelations Hmm. about Sirius himself and sort of a preparation for this awareness that our protagonists might sometimes get unfairly drawn into these systems and that we maybe shouldn't trust the government. Okay, so Aunt Marge's question about whether or not they use the cane, it is clear from this interaction that the point of the system is strictly to incarcerate and abuse. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a school that you send your children to for reform. Like it's not a reform school. Mm-hmm. It's not like a military academy. Like the whole point of sending your child there so that somebody else can abuse them for you. 
which I think if we think about that as a kind of parallel to the function of Azkaban, you send the criminals to Azkaban so that this other system of creatures can torture and torment them so that you as a society don't have to have any responsibility for them. I think it's really interesting connecting the school to Sirius and what's going to happen um, with Harry. But it's interesting thinking about the prison system as it exists in the book, because, well, I think what it is doing is normalizing Mm -hmm. the prison system Mm -hmm. for child readers. And while we see that it is a terrible, terrible place, we also see that the, quote, right people Mm -hmm. are there, Mm -hmm. and that people like Hagrid, what did he do? He went, he didn't try to run away, Mm. he was not guilty, and then eventually justice prevailed. Mm -hmm. He got out. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it's just interesting to think about the school (laughs) and how punitive it is and how there's no reform there. And then Azkaban and the prison system in the book. Mm -hmm. You're getting at really what my constant question is when I think about Azkaban in these books, which is, you know, is the representation of Azkaban as monstrous and horrifying like a critique of prisons, or is it a way of getting children readers (laughs) ready, like used to the idea of prison as this nightmarish place that is basically about putting the fear of criminality in you as a like technique of self-discipline, right? This way of of getting us to all like like self-manage because we are afraid of this punishment. And the fact that Sirius, he is innocent. That's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. That the yeah. miscarriage of justice that we see happening is the Dementors overstepping and mm-hmm. Sirius being misidentified as a criminal. But there's no question that like the quote unquote real criminals should be there. Like, everybody's very happy to have Mm -hmm. the Death Eaters locked away forever on a terrifying prison island. And even with Mr. Weasley and Dumbledore speaking to the necessity Mm. of it, Mm -hmm. right? That, like, they they don't want that, but, you know, it's kind of necessary. Yeah, we've got a scene where they explicitly say that. Mr. Weasley says Dumbledore isn't fond of the Azkaban guards, nor am I. But if it comes to that, when you're dealing with a wizard like Black, you sometimes have to join forces with those you'd rather avoid. Yeah. Something that I had never actually considered before, Mercedes, until you made your point about acclimating children to the prison system, is that if, like, Azkaban is so obviously bad that when young people start learning about the carceral system that exists in the real world, it's like, oh, well, it's not as bad as Azkaban, you know? Mm -hmm. There aren't monsters torturing you and sucking out your soul. You know, you get fed, you get a bed, you get to, like, you have clean clothes. And so I think I'd never really thought about it that way before. I'd always sort of been thinking about Azkaban as a critique, but you're totally right. The way that it's set up as the sort of necessary evil in order to keep the dangerous people away. It's like an extreme. And then when we look at our own prison system, which is so dehumanizing and awful, 
it doesn't seem as bad. Yeah. In that way, Marcel, the further to what both you and Mercedes are articulating, there's this potential to read a sort of liberal reformist narrative, which is to say, you know, well, we all agree that we need prisons, but they should probably be nicer than this. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. this creation of like a boogeyman prison and the Dementors as these literal boogeyman characters then lets you sort of place the real prison system next to that and be like, look how much we've improved it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you still need somewhere to put your Death Eaters, but like, yeah, look at all these rights we gave them. Yes. That's really interesting. Well, I think... I think Mr. Weasley and Dumbledore definitely would be prison reformers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess because I acquired this intimate knowledge of the prison so early in my life, before I could even really think about it critically, to me, the prison system as it exists in the world is very similar to Azkaban. Like, it is a fortress. Mm-hmm. It is deliberately placed in the middle of nowhere, maybe not the middle of the sea on an island. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I think about the institutions in the lower mainland and how distant they were from cities in the greater Vancouver area, now, of course, the cities have grown and expanded, so people might be a little bit closer to the prisons than they Mm -hmm. used to be. Mm -hmm. But to me, it does seem like a very isolated place. And I see prison guards in the same way that I see cops. They are all bad. doesn't mean that the people are bad, but um, they as an institution are bad. Mm. And so I definitely see the prison guards in the real world as um, monsters that suck the joy out of people. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of time that prisoners um, spend isolated Mm -hmm. in segregation is intended um, to deteriorate their mental health to the point that they are despairing and want to die. Mm -hmm. This pandemic, um, we have all been affected by it. I feel, though, that no one has been affected by it more than the prisoners who were um, on a literal lockdown. So we often are talking about us being on a lockdown, but we're talking about folks who spent 23 to 24 hours a day in a room no bigger than your bathroom. The way that I know the prison in my body, in my mind and in my emotions, it's I kind of see it. Like Azkaban. We had a, a guest on a bonus Patreon interview episode who he's a public defender in the States. And he agreed with that reading. He was like, yes, actually, this is exactly what prison is like. This way that it isolates people, takes them out of their communities, has reverberating harm to the community. And this is something that Again, I keep coming back to that on the one hand, we can say we know the real author's politics and we can probably make a fairly good guess at what she intended. But if we push away for a moment the idea of authorial intent and instead ask Mm -hmm. ourselves what are the sort of, you know, glimmers of radical possibility that might be buried, however, unintentionally in this text... The degree to which the Dementors and Azkaban are actually incredibly realistic, accurate representations of the horror mm-hmm. of the prison industrial complex and the monstrosity of the system and the 
way that in the book it's so absurd and arbitrary and so like evidently corrupt and and Hagrid says this right that he says when he's talking about Azkaban he says the Dementors didn't want to let him go yeah mind the Dementors weren't keen on letting me go he says and he specifies that the Dementors don't care about innocence they just want people in Azkaban so they can leech the happiness out of them they just want to feed on them like that's a powerful metaphor for the prison industrial complex it's like People are feeding on, like the system is feeding on Mm -hmm. incarcerated people. I have to say my mind kind of pivoted there around that word innocence Mm -hmm. and that whole Mm -hmm. complicated thing around innocence Mm -hmm. and whether or not death is deserved. I bring that back to Vancouver and the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people who are blamed for their deaths and disappearances Mm -hmm. because of the lifestyle, air quotes, Mm -hmm. lifestyle choices that they made. So they are not seen as um, innocent. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the way, I mean, this is a point Marcel has made in previous episodes that There's an emphasis in the text on how Sirius survives prison because of his knowledge of his own innocence. And so there is a sense that the story wants innocence to be a real thing, not a way that the system categorizes you, but like a real moral standing that is internalized. And that, for me, Mm -hmm. ties back to that construction of Sirius as monstrous and to the way that, you know, he's described the first time Harry sees a picture of him, he's described as looking like a vampire and the degree of panic that spreads through the wizarding world upon the revelation that he has gotten out, you know, tells us something about this like foundational belief that like this is not a human who did something harmful and needs to be we need a harm reduction strategy that involves him not being able to murder other people like that's not Mm -hmm. that's not the imagination operating here the imagination operating here is one in which he is a monster And the fear that people have of him is not the fear of somebody who committed a political crime. It's the fear of a vampire got out of vampire jail and is coming for your children. Right. And that idea of the the construction of the incarcerated person as a monster I mean, it's foundational, right, to the whole carceral logic of needing to remove people and lock them away somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if this happens in the book, but in the movie, when they show the reward posters, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. wanted posters, I say this as somebody um, who has a mental illness, he looks mad, yeah. mm-hmm. right? He looks mad. And so I was thinking about the way in which Bellatrix appears to be mad Mm -hmm. or I'm using my air quotes here, crazy. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about the ways in which we might think of Sirius Black through the movie representation, which may not be the same Mm -hmm. quite as the book and the representation of Bellatrix, they are 
mentally ill people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that are being incarcerated. And again, it turns out that Sirius is innocent, uh, but the representation of them as definitely aberrant, but also, I think, mad or deranged, to use those very problematic words. Yeah. I mean, that's there in the text, too. And I think what the novel makes clear is that I think somebody says this at some point. If he wasn't mad before he went into Azkaban, he definitely is now. Mm. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that Mm -hmm. is a thing that Azkaban does to you. But that it becomes another justification of like, if this person is mad, then they need to be institutionalized Mm -hmm. in some way. They can't be out in society. And so, yeah, there there is a deep connection to the sort of disproportionate incarceration of disabled people and people with mental illnesses as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to say, Mercedes, I am convinced by your reading. (laughs) I think that there was some part of me that's like, is this book anti-prison? But I think you're right. (laughs) I think think that you are right. that This book is not anti-prison. And I also think that it provides us with images of the prison industrial complex that might aid us in our own articulation of a sort of abolitionist perspective on prisons as we continue to uh, aggressively reclaim this text in the interest of radical politics. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 19 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to the recently rebranded, renamed NotSorryWorks.com. Was Not Sorry Productions, now NotSorryWorks.com. Or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. Mercedes, can you tell people where they can find out more about your work? Go buy one of my books. And if you are in Canada and you're thinking about forming a prison abolition reading group, get in touch with me via Twitter, Inner City Kitty, and I will send you a copy of the book. Awesome. I love that. Thank you. Incredible. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry and the whole production team for helping to put together this episode and for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me stumble desperately through your usernames. Mm-hmm. Thanks this week to Overdue Carrier Pigeon, Evil Mr. T, Henry Dino, Lindsay.e.h. or maybe Lindsay A, uh, Harassed Mama, A Parmesan, Traloline, Dan Puff, and Shiana Conchita. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you, such as the aforementioned bonus interview with Adrian Angus, as well as our brand new Prefects tier. 
on our next episode, we are concluding our discussion of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with our signature wrap-up episode segments. But until then... Later, witches. Later, witches.